Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This podcast is intended to be listened to in order, starting at episode one, then two, and so on. This is Episode 2, Forensic Garbage. Last time on Dakota Spotlight. I mean, I've watched my father drink from sunup to sundown, and I've never seen him in a position to where he could not physically function for himself. And I have seen this man consume large amounts of alcohol. Morton County Sheriff Kyle Kirchmeyers ruled out foul play as a cause of death for 51-year-old Victor Newberry of Glen Ullen, found dead outside his vehicle on December 27th. Um, they said that basically he were he was parked, and at, I guess while he was parked there, he passed out and fell out of the truck and, and froze, froze to death. The autopsy found that Newberry died of hypothermia due to prolonged exposure to cold outdoor weather, Kirchmeyer said. The sheriff added that alcohol played a role in Newberry's death. It just didn't make sense to me for someone to say that's the reason my father died. The information that Donna gave me was that there had been some type of altercation, possibly. Do you feel like you have a satisfactory answer for how your father died? I mean, realistically, no, I don't. Based on what they're saying, I honestly, it, it didn't give me any type of closure, and I, don't, I didn't believe that's how my father really passed. On an early Saturday morning, just a few days after I spoke with Victor's son, Johnny, I had the first of what would be a handful of dreams about Victor Newberry. These dreams were a little different each time, but they did have one thing in common. Victor rarely spoke. In fact, he only spoke once in one of them. I didn't often speak in these dreams either, but I did in this one, this very first encounter with Victor while sleeping. I don't know about you, but my strongest dreams always take place in the morning hours, just before I wake up. Who knows for sure why the minutes just before waking are prone to these intense and strongest of dreams, but if someone allowed me to propose a theory about it, I would say this. It is because our subconscious wants to get the most out of those last few moments of freedom, because it knows we're about to wake up, and it also knows that as soon as we do, playtime is over, and it will be stuffed back in the box we keep it in somewhere in the archive of our mind. Our subconscious is like that five-year-old kid in all of us that realized on the first day of kindergarten that the days of freedom from responsibility and accountability had suddenly come to an abrupt and surprising end. And we know it too when the alarm clock sounds. We wake up and stretch, and while shaking off that hidden life we live while sleeping, we start to slowly get into character to take on not just the well-known responsibilities, but also to take on whatever unexpected experiences might be sent our way on this, the next day of our adult life. As I began my day on that Saturday morning, 
I sat and drank my coffee in a wonderful silence and suddenly remembered this first dream of Victor. In that dream, I had pointed at a light moving across a dark sky. And then I spoke to Victor. I said, is that an airplane or a satellite? The night before this dream, I had fallen asleep while watching a documentary named Nova about the history and future of space travel. So while I was knocked out cold, I assumed my little subconscious latched onto that and ran wild with it while I was sleeping. In my dream, Victor didn't speak or move or even turn his head towards me. Only his eyes moved following the light, and it looked like he himself was trying to answer that very question. Is that an airplane or a satellite? I don't keep a dream journal, but while drinking my coffee, I wrote this dream down on a scrap of paper, and later I filed it away in a box full of manila folders, folders that would eventually inflate to hold hundreds of pages of documents and notes about Victor and his life and his death. On that morning, none of those manila folders were yet labeled as Victor's autopsy report, because it would be weeks before Johnny Newberry would receive it. Meanwhile, while we waited... I decided to spend some time learning about autopsies, coroners, and forensic science. To state that I was surprised by what I learned would be a gross understatement. In the end, I was no longer certain that an autopsy report even belonged in a manila folder for safekeeping. Instead, I was beginning to feel that, especially in the case of Victor's, an autopsy report would best be filed away directly into the garbage can. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, real stories from the true north. Season one, the story of Victor Newberry, is one man's personal quest to explain another man's perplexing death. What happened exactly to Victor Newberry of Glenolan, North Dakota, found dead next to his vehicle in December of 2014? My name is James Wallner. Music by Julia Kent. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information, suggest stories for future seasons, submit tips and questions, see photographs, and sign up for the newsletter. If you're like me, Most of what you know about autopsies and forensic science is from television, either from dramas like CSI or documentaries about true crime and FBI investigations. On television, forensic scientists have reached an almost star status, outshining old-school investigative heroes of the past, detectives like Columbo and Sherlock Holmes. Up on our flat-screen TVs, the medical examiners and the facilities they work in always seem to be so sophisticated. The staff are highly skilled and intelligent, and the room they work in is somehow tinted with a blue backlight, suggesting a high-tech, sterile, and organized environment, a workplace where mistakes are never made. Blood stabbings are very bloody, so if there is blood on this jacket, it will cause it to glow. In reality, though, things are much different. I learned that mistakes are not only made, sometimes they are huge mistakes. For example, let me tell you about just one of the stories I found 
where a medical examiner got it wrong. This was in Virginia. A woman named Ann Fayville was found deceased. The medical examiner who did the postmortem concluded she had choked on a piece of chicken. But in this case, unlike most others, family members questioned that outcome because just before she died, Ann Fayville had been planning on leaving her husband and she had been very apprehensive about how he might react. And so, two other pathologists re-examined the case and determined that she didn't accidentally choke. She was suffocated. The husband was charged and found guilty of murder. In fact, in a bizarre side note, upon receiving the guilty verdict, the husband took his own life right then and there with a plastic object he'd smuggled into the courtroom. This story is not an isolated event. Reporters and researchers have documented multiple cases where examiners have repeatedly lost body parts, completely missed bullet holes in a body, and in general, performed poor work. One medical examiner was arrested for drunk driving on his way to the office. Had Ann Faville's family simply accepted the examiner's findings, like most people tend to do, the husband would have literally gotten away with murder. Tonight, frontline correspondent Lowell Bergman reports with ProPublica and NPR on death investigation in America. Call a death an accident or miss a homicide altogether, a murderer goes free. Lots of very bad... In 2011, some of the most respected investigative journalists at NPR, PBS, and ProPublica collaborated on a year-long investigation into coroners and medical examiners in the United States. Their findings were revealed in a frontline documentary titled Postmortem. And you're saying they're producing garbage every day? I'm saying in this country, many medical legal offices are producing garbage, yes. And then you have a family that looks at it, and it's typed on this neat paper, and there's this official seal, and they say, I guess they know what they're doing. They concluded that in America, the industry is, quote, a dysfunctional system short of qualified people, squeezed for resources, and lacking in oversight, unquote. It is the lacking in oversight part that should concern us, because when a medical examiner makes a mistake, and it is known now that they do make mistakes, you're likely not going to hear about it. As Marcella Fierro, one of the most prominent chief medical examiners in the nation states, in that frontline documentary, So that if a death isn't recognized as being suspicious, say, for violence, and it's released as a natural death, it's buried or cremated, whatever the family wishes, never to rise again. If you're uncertain about the difference between a coroner, a medical examiner, and a forensic pathologist, you're not alone. This is what I learned. A coroner is a person in your community, often holding a county-wide position. In some states, the coroners are elected positions. In others, they're appointed. The coroner is responsible for helping to investigate unexplained deaths, and he or she decides if an autopsy needs to be carried out by a medical examiner. Coroners rarely perform the postmortem themselves. They don't even need to be doctors, and in fact, many are not. The coroner might be the county sheriff, a funeral home director, or perhaps a nurse. One coroner in the state of Alabama was actually a blind man. The requirements to become a coroner in some states is a high school diploma. Coroners review autopsy findings, and often, although not always, they are the ones to sign the coveted certificate of death, that piece of paper that loved ones rely on to help settle estates, insurance claims, and hopefully 
bring murderers to justice. Among other things noted on a death certificate are cause of death and manner of death. Cause of death is what killed the person, while manner of death is how that happened. For example, if a person falls from a tall building and dies, the cause of death is the blunt force trauma to the body. The manner of death, how the person fell from the building, can be one of four things. Accident, suicide, homicide, or natural causes. In the case of the person falling from the building, the accident, suicide, and homicide versions would be a person slipping, jumping, or being pushed. Contrasting coroners, medical examiners, and forensic pathologists carry out the actual autopsy. These people are perceived as being the experts. Some medical examiners are doctors, while others are forensic pathologists specially trained to perform autopsies. Forensic pathologists, then, are the closest things we have to experts in post-mortem work. But even they make mistakes. In fact, in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences created a so-called blue ribbon panel to point out the lack of oversight into the performance of coroners and medical examiners. One of the problems is probably due to the fact that there is no mandatory standard for autopsies, if you can believe that. Let me say that one more time, just to let that part sink in. There is no mandatory standard for autopsies. Standards exist everywhere else, and many of us are required to adhere to them on a daily basis. If I don't place my garbage can in the right spot along the sidewalk on garbage days, it's possible the sanitation crew will skip it completely. I need to adhere to the standards of garbage collection, or there will be consequences. Apparently, though, a medical examiner performing an autopsy does not have a standard to adhere to, at least not one that is mandatory. So, while loved ones mourn and wait on the post-mortem results, the person performing the autopsy is evidently free from any concern about consequences of their work. You may be thinking, but really, what does this all mean for the death of Victor Newberry? More than you might think. We all know that mistakes happen. We make them ourselves in our daily lives. But some mistakes have bigger consequences than others. To use the garbage analogy again, if I make the mistake of forgetting to take out the garbage, my kitchen smells like garbage. But if a NASA technician does not apply the proper torque on a bolt, astronauts die. When mistakes are made on autopsies, murderers can go free and innocent people go to jail. Still, you may be thinking this. Just because there's an issue in an industry does not mean that all people with that occupation are corrupt or doing shoddy work. Why should we think that the quality of Victor's autopsy might have been anything less than excellent? I agree with the logic in that line of thought. For example, every time we pay the cashier in cash, a part of us is alert to make sure that we get the right change. We know that shortchanging people has been around as long as money has been in existence. Sometimes it happens due to a mathematical error, a mistake. But sometimes it's because the cashier is dishonest. But you probably don't walk into your coffee shop or gas station or bank or store thinking, all the staff are a bunch of crooks. One bad apple doesn't spoil the whole bunch, we know.
But what if you read an article online about your local barista or gas station cashier or bank teller? An article that explained that before moving into your community, he or she had been caught shortchanging people over and over again. Wouldn't that affect the way you count your change the next time that person hands over some money? Because although it's true that one bad apple does not spoil the whole bunch, we still don't want that one bad apple. Remember the story I told you about the woman who was murdered, suffocated to death by her husband in Virginia? The first medical examiner, the one who said that she had died from choking on a piece of chicken, his name is William Masello III. But there will be no more autopsies performed by Mr. Masello in Virginia. That is all in the past, because he is no longer employed as a medical examiner there. He wasn't fired or anything, and he didn't change occupations, nor did he retire. No, William Masello III is no longer in Virginia because, in 2007, he was hired by the state of North Dakota to be the state medical examiner. In 2017, his office performed over 200 autopsies in Bismarck, North Dakota. And, on December 29, 2014, about 48 hours after Victor Newberry was found lying dead in the snow, William Masello III performed an autopsy on Victor Newberry. Dakota Spotlight will be back in a moment. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Um, you know, he just had a very different viewpoint than what seemed to be common sense on a lot of these things. Fingerprinted, and he goes, well, this isn't like CSI Miami, or it just doesn't happen like that. You know, you don't just all of a sudden, you know, one minute you're perfectly fine, and the next minute your brain's swollen to the point that you die. Discovering that the state medical examiner of North Dakota the person who did Victor's autopsy, might have made some potentially controversial autopsy rulings in Virginia, I knew I needed to find out more. Very fortunate for me, a journalist named Cameron Austin had already done the footwork for me when she wrote extensively about Masello in 2015. She was following the Fayville trials, the case I told you about when Mr. Masello was convinced that Anne Fayville had choked on a piece of chicken. I tracked down Cameron Austin, where she now works in Washington, D.C. To start with, I asked her how she became interested in Masello in the first place. 
when I was a reporter there, um, you know, there was a really prominent um, elementary school teacher found dead in her home, what seemed to be in 2000 um, an accidental choking case. At least that's kind of what Masello at the time had ruled it as. But her daughters and um, you know her immediate family members thought that that was kind of weird. They didn't think that this you know grown adult woman would kind of uh, have choked by herself at home. And I guess there were some marital issues at the time. Um, they reopened um, the autopsy case with the current medical examiner, Amy Tharp. And Amy Tharp came to really a different conclusion about how uh, Mickey Fable had died. And that really brought my attention to Masello. And I had started hearing stories in the town that, you know, this wasn't the first time that Masello had had controversial decisions on his autopsies. Um, it really led me to kind of look into more of sort of the the war that was going around the police enforcement community in the area about Masello and his autopsies. Um, and, you know, in doing so, found out that now in North Dakota as well, there had been some potential controversial uh, decisions made by him as well. And, you know, I just think this is such an important role, you know, in, in these investigations. You know, cause of death really affects a bunch of different things, whether it's you know, uh, workers' compensation payments or, you know, uh, criminal charges, a, a variety of different things. And it, it was just super interesting to learn about the whole process and kind of his background on what he believed his role to be in these cases. I asked Carmen, of course, what she had found out. What did Dr. Marcello consider his role to be as a medical examiner? I think actually Marcello says it himself. Um, if you kind of look at his statements on what his job is, you know, he pretty much says, like, you know, everyone calls these things rulings, um, you know, that, that he comes to a ruling on the matter. And he himself has said that he believes that they're classifications and that they don't mean anything when it comes to legal proceedings. So the North Dakota State Medical Examiner has been quoted as saying he doesn't believe his findings should be used for legal proceedings. That made me wonder, of course, if anyone else agrees with that statement because the cause of death on a death certificate is absolutely used for legal matters. I asked Cameron if she bounced Masella's opinion off of other people when she was working on this story. Of course she had, and as expected, people considered it to be a bizarre statement. When I did take that quote to a lot of the local prosecutors, um, obviously they kind of got like scoffed at that and was like, that's insane. You know, our job is based around what Masello or whoever is in that position decides. You know, when Mickey Fable's autopsy came back as an accidental choking, you know, then the prosecutor is not able to press charges on whoever the suspect might have been, or, you know, in other cases where he's ruled the death accidental and, or, you know, different causes, you know, those are, have major implications in in how things go moving forward. And so Masello, I don't know if he himself really understood. I mean, I'm sure he understood the importance of what he was doing, but I'm not sure if he understood, you know, maybe the implications that his rulings had. In one of the cases, uh, Leslie Dickerson. Cameron told me about another case she had followed and written about in Virginia involving Dr. Masello. In 2005, a woman named Mindy Dickerson died, and Masello ruled that she died from a rare disease named encephalitis, the swelling of the brain tissue, which affects about 1 in 200,000 people. But later, two independent reviews were done at the request of Mindy's family, and both of those came to other conclusions about her death. 
One of those independent investigations was done by the chief medical examiner, Marcelo Fierro, who we heard speak earlier in this podcast because she was in that frontline documentary, Postmortem. Call a death an accident or miss a homicide altogether, a murderer goes free. When Fierro reviewed Dickerson's death, she determined that violence cannot be excluded as the cause of death, and she changed the cause of death from Marcelo's encephalitis to undetermined. According to Cameron Austin's article, which I will post at dakotaspotlight.com, the other independent autopsy on Dickerson concluded that she may have been smothered or strangled in a homicidal manner. And, apparently, Mindy had additional injuries that could be associated with this. Scratches on her face, hemorrhaging inside of her mouth and lips, and physical indications on her neck and throat consistent with strangulation. And so, due to these reviews, Mindy Dickerson's body was exhumed and a new autopsy was performed. Keeping in mind that Dr. Masello said that she had died of encephalitis, a swelling of the brain tissue, according to Cameron's article, the new autopsy concluded that none of the brain tissue appeared inflammatory or indicated swelling of the brain. After all of this catch-up work, Dickerson's husband, Leslie Dickerson, was finally charged with first-degree murder. But in the end, he couldn't be tried, and the charges were dropped. Why? Cameron Austin explained it this way. Leslie Dickerson, um, he was originally charged in his wife's death, um, and Masello was investigating the brain tissue of his deceased wife. And the brain tissue got so contaminated within Masello's office that it was no longer admissible in court. Apparently, Masello testified in the Dickerson hearings that there is, quote, nothing sterile about the morgue, unquote, where autopsies are completed. That's because there's no need to worry about infecting a living being, he said. I asked Cameron Austin for her own personal opinion on Masello. You know, I know when he was got hired in North Dakota, he was quoted as saying that, you know, when he was in Virginia, they were understaffed and they were performing, you know, 700 plus autopsies annually and that they were understaffed. And so maybe that was, you know, some sort of excuse for why these findings were so disputed. But it sounds like in North Dakota, he's, he's had some more bad luck follow him there. The more I learned about the state medical examiner of North Dakota, the more curious I became. I made a note to request a statement from the North Dakota Department of Health, which governs the medical examiner's office and where Mr. Masello is employed and does his work. I wondered if the state of North Dakota agrees with Dr. Masello when he says that his work should not be used for legal matters. I also made a note to request an interview with Masello himself. I wanted to ask him if he really didn't think the morgue needs to be a sterile environment. Mr. Masello, of course, deserved to have every opportunity to correct or refute or confirm any of the information I had, and I would give him every opportunity to do so. So I was actually there when, in the courtroom, when Masello was testifying, sort of defending his findings in this case. And, um, you know, it was kind of funny after reaching out to him and and trying to get him on the phone all this time, um, to kind of actually have him there in person really gave me a lot of perspective, I think, on his personality, his character, and I don't know if you've ever, you know, seen Masello or seen any footage of him, but he, he's a character. He is kind of eccentric. He, um, you know, has almost sort of like a spastic, sort of like, the only way I can describe it is like a, a mad scientist kind of energy about him. And, um, you know, he just had a very different viewpoint than what seemed to be common sense on a lot of these things. 
Even though it was not relevant exactly, I had to ask Cameron about the suicide that took place in the courtroom when Anne Favell's husband was found guilty of murder and when Marcello's chicken theory was rejected by a jury. To this day, it's probably one of the, not traumatic, but just the weirdest things that ever happened. So again, there's already been all this controversy around this case. It's been reopened. You know, Ward Favell is found guilty. He somehow managed to sneak in a plastic object through the metal detector of the courthouse and essentially, um, you know, killed himself in the courtroom right there. And, you know, this is a packed courtroom with, you know, family members, um, reporters, everyone. And, um, you know, I was obviously really shaken up and everyone else was as well. The courtroom got put on lockdown and I found out later that, um, you know, within the next hour or so that, you know, he had committed suicide. I told Cameron a little bit about the death of Victor Newberry. I told her Johnny and I were waiting for a copy of the autopsy report, but I also told her I was having my doubts about what it could possibly tell us. Based on everything she knew about Marcello, I had to ask her if she thought maybe he might have gotten Victor's autopsy wrong, too. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I think it's been proven that Marcello has gotten it wrong before, um, and I, you know, I wouldn't put it past it to be wrong again. Just to be perfectly clear, when Cameron says wrong in this context, that Masello got it wrong and it has been proven, she is basing that statement off of two very strong things. It was not just that another examiner came to a different conclusion about the cause of death, but also a jury found Anne Favell's husband guilty of murder, and that man then killed himself. It's possible that Mr. Masello, to this day, believes his findings were the accurate ones, but Certainly, Cameron is justified in claiming that Mr. Masello, according to many others, seemed to have gotten it wrong. Dakota Spotlight will be back in a moment. Another thing I'd like to mention is that you might want to keep your eye on the Dakota Spotlight Facebook page and Dakota Spotlight webpage at www.dakotaspotlight.com. During the course of this podcast, I will be posting links, photos, videos, and other information related to this story. For example, if you want to watch that frontline investigation of coroners and medical examiners, you can find the info at dakotaspotlight.com. After speaking with Cameron Austin, I reached out to an attorney in Virginia named Mike Flinor. Yes, uh, my name is Mike Flinor. I'm a, a practicing attorney in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I've uh, had a number of uh, homicide cases over the years with Dr. Marcella, both as a prosecutor and as a uh, criminal defense attorney. I've never really heard anything like that. Honestly, I, I really never had any reason to, to question his professionalism or his um, competence. However, I do recognize there were a, there were a couple of specific cases uh, that became uh, highly controversial in recent years in which his opinion and visions were uh, called into question. Regarding the Mindy Dickerson case, Mr. Fleener had this to say. 
after uh, um, another doctor reviewed the results. And then even after that, after the body was exhumed, an entirely new autopsy was conducted. It was changed from, it actually was changed twice. It was changed from Dr. Marcello's view that the female died of natural causes to undetermined. And then after the body was exhumed and a new autopsy was done, it was changed to um, the cause of death was a homicide. So that's a pretty dramatic uh, change. From looking at the brain tissue, he thought the brain was swollen, and he concluded encephalitis. The counter-argument was, was that, okay, her brain may have been swollen somewhat, but all the other symptoms of encephalitis, you know, she did not exhibit in her, you know, when she was alive. You know, you don't just all of a sudden, you know, one minute you're perfectly fine and the next minute your brain's swollen to the point that you die you know as someone who ordinarily dies from that it's over many days or maybe even weeks you know i i don't know dr Masello personally uh, i think the only you know i've probably had you know a few dozen conversations with him over the last 20 years uh, you know i can't tell you you know who his favorite baseball team is or what, you know, any, anything personal about it. Uh, I can say that, uh, you know, he, he may, I, I, he may come off as a bit eccentric, um, you know, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, uh, really, I mean, now theoretically it could, uh, it could potentially, uh, affect a jury. It could, you know, when you yeah. have 12, After I spoke with Cameron Austin and Mike Fleener, I made multiple interview requests to both Dr. Masello and to his staff. But Dr. Masello and his staff respectfully declined my interview requests. So, I reached out to his boss instead. Uh, James Walner for Kirby Kruger. My name's Kirby Kruger and I'm section chief for the medical services section with the North Dakota Department of Health. So you are Mr. Masella's boss, in other words? Uh, I am the section chief, which oversees that uh, in the medical examiner's office is one of the areas that I oversee, yeah. I told Mr. Kruger about the frontline documentary, post-mortem, and other research I'd done into the status of the coroner system and autopsies in the United States. I found it concerning that researchers had discovered that there was such a lack of oversight in this industry. What are your thoughts on that? What kind of oversight is there? Well, I, I, I think that there's, there's two levels of oversight um, involved for, for the forensic pathologist. And, and what we see here in North Dakota is that there's the medical level and then there's sort of an administrative level, department level. Um, he is a licensed physician. Uh, he is board accredited in forensic pathology. And in order for him to practice in North Dakota, he has to meet the standards set forth by the Board of Medicine. And the Board of Medicine is responsible for providing the oversight for his medical part of his practice. In other words, at least as far as oversight is concerned, at least the kind of oversight I was talking about, Mr. Kruger was not responsible for that, and I would need to talk to the North Dakota Board of Medicine. Where I get involved in is is that is the forensic pathology, uh, forensic 
pathologist's office, uh, are they following department uh, policy and are they following through with what we expect of them to do. So are they following policy? From my perspective, yes. I emailed you before this interview that I'm looking into son of Dr. Marcello's past. So I assume either before that or since then you've maybe read a couple articles online about him? I have not done a lot of research on him. I, you know, he, he was in place before I took over as administrator. Um, he brings with him a, a wealth of knowledge uh, from, from his previous physician in, in Virginia. From the medical point of view, uh, I leave it up to the Board of Medicine to, to determine his qualifications. Do you happen to know if the Board of Medicine is aware of those? You know, that's something I think you'd have to ask the Board. I did ask the Board. I sent a very lengthy email to Bonnie Storbakken of the North Dakota Board of Medicine. I asked her a lot of questions, actually. She did reach out to me and would only provide one answer, which she apologized for. She said the only thing she could tell me was, the matter has not been discussed at the board level. So he says, I'm going to quote here, everybody calls these things rulings. They're not rulings, they're classification, and they mean absolutely nothing when it comes to legal proceedings. Have you heard that quote before? No, I've not heard that. Okay. I can't comment directly on his thoughts or what you know where where that's coming from with him right. but but certainly from our, my perspective, where I see our role is we're one piece of the puzzle. you know we have a death investigation going on, um, and it may be for a variety of reasons why that individual death is being investigated, and Dr. Mazzello's findings are going to be just one piece, and they have to be taken into context with all of the other stuff that's being uh, um, discovered during that investigation. Let me just tell you my observations, is that um, I find him to be very professional when I work with him. Um, on the few occasions when I've gone into the autopsy suite just to observe procedures, uh, the autopsy suite is very well run. Um, the people who work with him enjoy working with him because he is very good about educating as he works. He brings a wealth of experience to North Dakota that um, we feel lucky to have here uh, in the department and to be able to offer to North Dakota and that uh, the work that he does is important and that the people who work for him enjoy working for him. So. Carmen Austin stated that while she was working on her story about Masello, she had found some cases in North Dakota in which his autopsy findings were being disputed or questioned. One such case was that of a man named Brandon Belk. Brandon Belk died in July of 2013, about one and a half years before Victor died. He passed away after cleaning out a fracking tank at work in the North Dakota oil fields. According to a news article I found, Brandon's reaction to something, most likely the residual chemicals in the tank, was almost immediate, causing him ultimately to vomit and causing his throat to bleed. Masello did not rule it a work-related accident, however. He said that Brandon died of pneumonia in combination with prescription drugs in his system. According to the article I found, no tests were done for the residual chemicals in the fracking tank, nor the cleaning chemicals he was using in the confined space. At the time of Brandon's death, his daughter was 12 years old. Today she is 18 and basically at the mercy of the death certificate, that piece of paper 
based on Marcello's autopsy. She is unable to claim about $300,000 in workers' compensation death benefits. I met with Brandon Belk's siblings, Wendy, Nicole, and Jeremy. He was my big little brother. He was a big boy, strong as an ox. Loving, fun, caring person that would give you the shirt off their back. Big teddy bear, but super protective at the same time. He could uh, give you a hug like nobody. Mm -hmm. He was very, very loving. From the beginning, it was clear to me that their faith in the system had pretty much run its course. Brandon's sister, Nicole, told a little story which echoes their faith, or perhaps lack of faith, in the system doing the right thing. Off topic, but my husband had his pickup outside of our house, and somebody walked into our yard and stole two handguns out of his pickup. So we called the sheriff, and they came out, and we said, well... You know, he picked up this flashlight because it was on in my husband's pickup. Can you fingerprint it? And he goes, well, this isn't like CSI Miami or CSI, you know, New York or whatever. It just doesn't happen like that. He went into a tank to clean it. Um, You never know what is in the tanks. You don't know if it's calcium chloride, invert, a trash tank where they put all different types of chemicals. Um, You didn't know if it was diesel or Flowback. Flowback's radioactive. Uh, originally, I was the one that was set to uh, clean the tanks that day, but I hadn't been out on a dispatch in a while. So, um, and then Brandon was like, well, I'll clean tanks, and then you can go out on the dispatch. And uh, the specific tank that he got into was pretty nasty, I guess, so it took quite some time. So it makes me think that it was Flowback, because flowbacks, it's almost like a tar-type stuff that's on the inside of the tank. So uh, Brandon went in the tank. He cleaned for about 30 minutes or so, and then uh, didn't have any... We never had any respirators or supplied air masks or anything like that, so they'd give you a dust mask at max. You know, it does nothing for vapors or any gases or anything like that. He goes in the tank for about a half hour comes out he's not feeling too well and this other kid jumped in uh he was in for about 10 minutes and then he wasn't feeling very good so he got out of the tank brandon jumped in the last time and by the time he came out he was throwing up and his his eyes were swollen and everything else like that um he was putting cotton balls down his throat or tissue and he pulled them out and there was blood on them and that evening, Brandon called me and he goes, Nikki, I don't know what to do. He said, you know, and he started explaining how he goes, normally I have this really bad gag reflex, um, but I can put a tissue to my throat and it's bleeding. Um, he's like, you know, I've got this massive headache. It's just pounding. I haven't slept. And I said, well, you know, I think you should go get checked out. I said, do you want me to come and get you to bring you to Minot? And he's like, no, no, I'll just stay at Wofford. I'll, I'll just be fine. And I said, well, Whatever you do, I don't care what time you get home, please call me and tell me what's going on. And uh, he never did call. His daughter, Mariah, was actually there that day with him. Um, But he, she was daddy's little girl and he was very proud of her. They had a real special relationship. How is she doing today? Do you 
doing, doing much better than she was the first few years. Very intelligent girl, very talented. Her dad would be super proud of her and her overcoming everything that she did. It is understandable, of course, that Brandon Belk's family is not happy with Dr. Marcello's findings. They say that it makes Brandon sound like a drug addict and that it does not really make common sense that it's not somehow related to the accident at work. According to the article I found, Marcello has said the following regarding work-related accidents. Quote, Sometimes we may not be sure whether it's work-related or drug-related or a combination of both, so we have to check off no. Sometimes the person has an accident, then they go home and take drugs, too many drugs, and the issue is, what role did the accident play in this? It isn't clear, end quote. Brandon's sister, Wendy, had this to say. If there is no mandatory regulation or mandatory things that they have to do, I would push for um, certain things that are absolutely mandatory. And if there are some of these things, like on the autopsy or the, the certif- death certificate, well, we just check this one. You know, If there's any doubt or question, there should be a second opinion. I agree with Wendy. In fact, I would take Wendy's statement a little further. Maybe there should always be a second opinion. If two licensed, highly experienced, and educated medical examiners can study the same brain tissue and come up with drastically different causes of death, maybe there should simply always be a second opinion, and maybe even a third or a fourth before a death certificate is signed and the consequences of it are set into play. In the Olympic Games, which, after all, is really just a bunch of games when you think about it, there are nine judges for gymnastics and ice skating. Nine. And what would we do if one of those talent shows like The Voice announced that they would change their format and only have one judge from now on? From the comfort of our own living room recliners, many of us might bark away at the television and complain about the unfairness of it all. But somehow, when it comes to the end of a human being's life, like when Brandon Belk suddenly dies after cleaning out a tank in the oil fields of North Dakota, many of us simply scratch our heads and say, well, what did the medical examiner decide for us? Perhaps all of us, including law enforcement, need to stop thinking this way, and we should simply always question autopsy findings, because medical examiners are like everyone else in that they make mistakes. And no, life cannot be about being perfect, because we will never ever get there as a human race not one single one of us. But even if life can't be about perfection, it can be about owning it, owning up to your mistakes and not making excuses for them. Sure, I can fall asleep tonight in front of the TV and I can let my subconscious take over again for a while, let that innocent five-year-old boy that somewhere still exists roam around my dreams for a few hours without a care in the world. Maybe climb an apple tree in Northern California and explore the crisp and sour-sweet tastes and smells from my childhood long before the responsibilities of life caught up with me. But before morning, I have to climb down from that tree, and like you and everyone else, I will morph out of dreamland and return to the real world where we are no longer five-year-olds, where we do have responsibilities, and despite our well-known imperfections, we are nevertheless expected to be accountable for our actions. And tomorrow... I will likely make some mistakes. I will make mistakes just telling this story. When I do, I hope I admit to them and acknowledge them. 
And as I learn more about what exactly happened to Victor Newberry and how he died, if I discover that others have made mistakes, I will ask them if they too will own up and be accountable. Because that really might be the closest we can ever get to being perfect, not due to an absence of mistakes made, but instead due to an impeccable track record when it comes to acknowledging our mistakes, to owning up to them, and perhaps even telling our loved ones and others and the world, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Next time on Dakota Spotlight. They probably just knocked him out or something and he just froze to death, I'll be honest with you. I don't know who did it or what did it or speculations, I'm not going to say no names or anything. In so many words, in their drunken state, yeah, they would always say, you're a dead man and shit like that. It seemed like it was kind of swept under the rug, you know. Some people are more important than others, maybe, I don't know. Just doesn't seem like anybody really cared. You have been listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1, the story of Victor Newberry. Music provided graciously by Julia Kent. Visit juliakent.com to learn more about Julia and her amazing work. Dakota Spotlight is produced by Everything Midwestern LLC of North Dakota. My name is James Wollner. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information. If you find yourself enjoying this podcast and would like to help support it and maybe make possible a season two, visit dakotaspotlight.com support to find out the many ways you can help out. Fellow podcasters, writers, researchers, investigators, and other curious and restless souls interested in a possible collaboration in the future, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.